Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, CardioNerds family. It's Amit Coyle. For this CardioNerds case report, we find ourselves back in sunny California with brilliant colleagues from Stanford University to discuss a challenging case of a 39-year-old healthy man presenting with complete heart block. Before we go any further, think to yourself, how would you evaluate an otherwise young and healthy patient with complete heart block? We'd like to thank our CardioNerds Fit Ambassador from Stanford University, Dr. Pablo Sanchez, as well as his co-fellows, Dr. Jimmy Tooley and Dr. Maggie Ning for preparing this phenomenal case discussion. And we're so honored to learn from a heart disease expert, a master educator, and a friend to the CardioNerds, Dr. Ron Wattellis. Remember everyone, CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Relevant speaker disclosures are available in the notes. If you find this show helpful, please do help others find us by reading and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast app. And now, let's get nerdy. Hey, Cardio Nerds, join us for a trip back to Palo Alto as we reconvene with our friends from Stanford Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. So before we dive into a phenomenal case, let's go ahead and have our guests introduce themselves. We've got cardiology fellows, doctors, Pablo Sanchez, Jimmy Tooley, and Maggie Ning. And we have the added benefit of a leading authority in the area relevant to this case. So guys, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Hey, everyone. It's so fun to be back on with you guys. My name is Pablo Sanchez. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow here at Sanford. I went to medical school at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and then residency and chief residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and then came over to Stanford for cardiology fellowship. My interests are in critical care and cardiology, and I'm planning on doing an extra year of critical care training here. Maggie, who will introduce herself, is one of my co-fellows, and the two of us are going to be the chief fellows next year. Uh, hi, guys. Um, I'm Jimmy Truly. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow here at Stanford as well. I went to med school at Yale, came out to Stanford, actually did a, a general surgery intern year before convincing Dr. Wittellis to let me into the residency program in internal medicine, and I stayed on for a cardiology. I plan on doing an electrophysiology fellowship, and I'm really excited to talk about our case today. Hi, everyone. My name is Maggie Ning, and I am a second-year cardiology fellow. I went to UT Southwestern uh, Medical School in Dallas, Texas, and I did my internal medicine residency training at Stanford, as well as, of course, here at Stanford for a cardiology fellowship. My interests are in cardiac sarcoidosis, as well as intervention cardiology. I plan to pursue an intervention cardiology year after my chief year next year with Pablo. Happy to be here. And I also have the honor to introduce Dr. Ron Wattellis. He has been such a phenomenal mentor for me in clinical as well as research. He's taught me everything I know about cardiac sarcoidosis, um, as well as convincing me to pursue cardiology in the first place. He was my program director, so he is a program director for the Stanford Internal Medicine Residency Training Program. He also serves as the co-director for Stanford Envoy Center, as well as our multidisciplinary sarcoid program. I'm super, super excited that he is here and, and be able to join us. Thanks, Maggie. And it's uh, really great to be here today. Uh, one of the titles I'm most proud of now is a uh, proud CardioNerds alum. This is uh, such a great great program that uh, you all have put together. And it's been my privilege to work with Jimmy and Maggie ever since they were residents in our program. My one regret, of course, is losing Maggie to interventional cardiology. But Maggie, there's still time. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Atellis, thank you so much for joining us again. Just we have been talking about uh, pre-recording, but you are our first guest outside of our home institutions. And ever since then, we have been reaching out across the country to many different specialists, but you led the charge. Thank you so much for taking a chance with us. And Pablo, Jimmy, welcome back. And Maggie, we are delighted to have you, A, as a future interventional cardiologist, but B, a first-time CardioNerds guest. Welcome, welcome, welcome to all of you. Happy to be here. So I guess let's get started. 
Pablo, do you want to take us to one of your other favorite places in the area and start telling us about a wonderful case in cardiology? Yeah, let me try and think of where we can go. There are just so many fantastic Mexican places. So I think we'll just kind of flip a coin, choose one of those places and go there, sit outside, socially distance. Although unless we're all vaccinated, we can sit maybe a little bit closer together than we did at the last recording and then talk about some cardiology. How does that sound? That sounds amazing. So yeah, so all three of us were involved in this patient's care and the following sequence of events actually really reflected how we each became involved. So this was a previously healthy, active 39-year-old Vietnamese gentleman who presented to urgent care with one month of palpitations, lightheadedness, fatigue, and headache. He had no symptoms of chest pain, orthopnea, lower extremity edema, abdominal bloating, or early satiety. He denied fevers, chills, changes in weight, rashes, joint pain, hot or cold intolerance, or recent travel. He was born in Vietnam and moved to the U.S. when he was two years old. He was healthy as a child, competed in track, and until the pandemic had been exercising regularly. He had a history of hyperlipidemia. His family history was only significant for multiple family members with diabetes, and there were none with cardiac issues or sudden death. He used to smoke tobacco, about one pack per week for five years, and now uses e-cigarettes, but frequently, and does not take any illicit drugs. He was not on any medications. Now, because we're all in cardiology, the combination of the words palpitations, lightheadedness, and fatigue immediately bring to the forefront the potential of a cardiomyopathic process. So let's break down what we can glean from this opening paragraph. Palpitations is one of the most common chief complaints that patients seen in primary care or refer to a cardiologist have. It is subjective. In other words, it's an unpleasant awareness of their heart beating, which can be rapid, irregular, or just forceful, often felt in the chest or the neck. The differential, as we know, ranges from the completely benign, where most patients will find themselves in, thankfully, to life-threatening conditions, arrhythmias, cardiomyopathies, fabulopathies, etc. So wading through the clinical details and search for red flags, although it can be tedious, is important. So the differential encompasses the following conditions in broad strokes, okay? One, metabolic and endocrine and particularly think of thyroid disease, hypoglycemia, and dare we even mention the rare pheochromocytomas here, two high output states, and important ones to keep in mind are anemia, fever, infection, and other more rare causes like Paget's disease and arteriovenous malformations. Three, catecholamine excess states, so particularly stress. Four, medications, drugs, ingestions. Think about sympathomimetics or anticholinergics, so albuterol, ephedrine, nicotine, which has been taken a lot of, and antihistamines. Also think of alcohol, coffee, cocaine, amphetamines, but also withdrawal from beta blockers. Lastly, number five, psychiatric disorders, so anxiety, panic attacks. So keeping all these things in mind, let's now dive into the arrhythmic conditions. As we alluded, this list includes benign and more worrisome issues. So premature atrial and ventricular contractions, which is probably most common among all comers, followed by atrial arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation, flutter, ectopic atrial tachycardia, and then reentrant rhythms like AVRT, AVNRT, and then ventricular tachycardias. Although bradyarrhythmias, including complete heart block, can also manifest as palpitations. Our patient describes fatigue, lightheadedness, and headaches, which, although could turn out to be benign, if they are attributable to palpitations, serves at least to concern us that the underlying cause may be leading to some hemodynamic, functional, and perfusion significance. He has a history of hyperlipidemia and is not on cholesterol-lowering therapy, so this suggests the possibility, at least, of coronary artery disease, even if it's only 39 years old. The fact that he has no chest pain, since we've established that he's active, argues some against ischemia. And then the lack of orthopnea, lower extremity edema, and early satiety and abdominal bloating, as of now at least, argues against overt right or left-sided heart failure. Next, he denies fevers, chills, changes in weight or rashes, and this lowers our concern, although it doesn't obviate the search for recent, current, or indolent infections. And things to think about are tuberculosis, coxidotomycosis, other fungal diseases, Lyme disease, viral pathogens, or gram-positive bacteremia, and then the resultant cardiac complications, including myocardial, valvular, and then pericardial issues. Autoimmune disorders can have systemic manifestations, and these often include fevers, rashes, and joint pain, and these are not evident here, but are not yet ruled out. The lack of hot or cold intolerance is probably the tip-off that 
this is not thyroid disease. And then his vaping history queries the topic of cardiovascular consequences of e-cigarettes. And unfortunately for that, we have limited data. While regular cigarette smoking certainly has a litany of well-known consequences, like hypercoagulability, endothelial dysfunction, early and accelerated atherosclerosis, leading to cardiovascular events, e-cigarette risk is less well-defined. Dr. Botellis, is there anything you would add at this point? No, that's a beautiful differential, Pablo. And, and you know, I think in a otherwise healthy 39-year-old with what are awfully nonspecific chief complaints here, I think a basic evaluation, basic laboratory evaluation, and basic rhythm evaluation would be in order. I don't know that I'd go much beyond that to start. So in summary, we're left with a 39-year-old male with palpitations and associated symptoms that raise red flags for potential cardiac etiology, but the differential still remains broad. So we'll dig in a little bit later about what else happened in this case. In the urgent care, the patient appeared well, uh, and his blood pressure was 123 over 75 with a heart rate of 50 beats per minute. Based on this, an EKG was then obtained. Thanks, Pablo. I'm always looking for an interesting ECG. So going through the ECG systematically, first, the P waves look sinus in origin and are coming at a regular rate that at first pass seems about 50 beats per minute. The QRS complexes are narrow with normal axis and are coming regular at a rate of also 50 beats per minute. The PR interval is quite long at 325 milliseconds, and the QT interval is normal. There are no ischemic ST segment or T wave changes. You know, the PR interval really wants me to take a, a closer look at this ECG. And when I take a closer look, I notice that the T waves seem abnormal. In lead V1, you can really see that there is an extra notch. And if you look even closer, you realize that that notch occurs immediately halfway between the PP interval. So at first pass, the ECG may look like sinus rhythm with PR prolongation and one-to-one -one conduction at 50 beats per minute. But what we're actually looking at here is sinus rhythm at an atrial rate of 100 beats per minute with every other P wave being transmitted to the ventricle, giving a ventricle rate of 50 beats per minute. This is two to one block. I suspect those palpitations are for every other atrial contraction occurring against a closed tricuspid valve. And on exam, this patient might have cannon A waves. Two to one block is a special rhythm because it can be caused by either wanky block or the more sinister type of secondary AV block, Mobit type two. Wanky block is typically associated with AV nodal disease, while Mobit type two is caused by disease of the more distal his Purkinje system. We can use this knowledge to help to try to distinguish the cause of 2 to 1 block. Clues that suggest that 2 to 1 block is winky block are if we exercise the patient or give them atropine, typically things that speed up conduction through the AV node, and the block gets better. On the other hand, maneuvers that slow conduction through the AV node, like carotid massage, should make conduction in Mobitz type 2 better. In the urgent care, the ECG was interpreted as sinus bradycardia and the patient was discharged home with a two-week ECG patch monitor. So three weeks later, I was the fellow on call and received a page from the company about the preliminary report. The report ended up revealing continuous high-grade and mostly third-degree AV block with a range of 30 to 80 beats per minute. And this is one of those pages where when you get them, you're afraid that the patient might already be hospitalized somewhere else. But on this particular occasion, the patient wore the patch for an entire two weeks and didn't come in in the interim. This tells me a couple of things. One, he's able to compensate his cardiac output and, and perfusion through increased stroke volume and SVR. And two, potentially he has some periods of adequate AV conduction. Lastly, he's 39 years old and better able to accommodate than some of our elderly patients. Complete heart block can also expose symptoms of underlying ischemic heart failure or valvular disease. So it's curious that his symptoms are so mild, suggesting that maybe he doesn't have a panoply of other issues. So I called him. He felt well, but I told him that he needed to come to the ED for an evaluation. Now, 100% high-grade AV block and complete heart block in a 39-year-old uh, really piques my interest. I was the consult fellow on, and after he didn't come into the ED for another three days... I was able to be a little bit more convincing on the phone than Pablo, and I was able to see him in the ED. When I saw the gentleman in the ED, he looked pretty well and was completely asymptomatic. His ECG showed sinus rhythm at a rate of 78 beats per minute with complete heart block and a junctional escape at 37 beats per minute. 
Like on his baseline ECG, he had no ischemic ST segment changes. Blood pressure was 120s over 60s. And on an exam, he was resting comfortably, had no signs of volume overload. And on auscultation of his heart, he had a regular S1, S2 without murmurs. His PMI was not displaced. So Jimmy, when a young person presents with complete heart block, what's running through your head? You know, I have to say, when I think of complete heart block, a 39-year-old athletic male is not the first person to come to mind. So first, 33 AV block is a disease of cardiac conduction system characterized by dissociation of atrial and ventricular activity and typically presents at advanced age due to idiopathic fibrosis associated with aging. Complete heart block was what may be permanent or reversible and can be caused by ischemia, infiltrative diseases, think sarcoid, amyloidosis, hemochromatosis, etc. Infections, we think of Lyme's disease, autoimmune disease, as in the transplacental exposure to maternal autoantibodies and congenital complete heart block. It could be associated with inherited cardiomyopathies, myocarditis, increased vagal tone, hypothyroidism, and of course, iatrogenic causes. But again, most commonly, complete heart block is caused by idiopathic fibrosis associated with aging. In fact, most of the time, we don't give too much consideration to the cause of complete heart block because these patients are usually pretty old when they present. But a 39-year-old patient with complete heart block definitely does give me pause. For one, I don't want to miss an undiagnosed underlying disease. Could complete heart block be the first sign of a genetic cardiomyopathy? And two, I would really hate to miss a reversible cause of complete heart block and expose a young patient to all the risks associated with a pacemaker. Yeah, I agree 100%. Additionally, we were fortunate that we could initiate a pretty comprehensive workup in the emergency department on a Friday afternoon. So first, the basics. His electrolytes, and of particular importance are the potassium, the calcium, and the magnesium, as well as the BUN and creatinine, were all normal, as were his white blood cell count, his hemoglobin, and platelets. Troponin was normal on two checks, and B natriuretic peptide was only mildly elevated at 173 picograms per milliliter. The upper limit of normal is 100. The TSH and ferritin were normal as well. Chest x-rays showed no parenchymal opacities, no pleural effusion, no cardiomegaly, nor hyalur prominence. And then while in the emergency department, he had a transthoracic echo, which showed normal biventricular structure and function, no regional wall motion abnormalities no significant valvular disease, and normal estimated right ventricular systolic pressure and right atrial pressure. Okay, so to summarize, our patient has symptoms attributed by complete heart block, and with thus far negative for reversible causes, such as the electrolyzed thyroid function ischemia that you mentioned, Pablo, and no other signs of infection. And additionally, his initial echo showed no appreciable structural heart disease. Thanks, Maggie. So what are you thinking we should do next? Well, Jimmy, I think you provided a really fantastic list of differential earlier. I assume that his transplacental maternal autoantibody exposure is very, very low at age 39. But the other differentials that you included are the myocarditis, the idiopathic fibrosis, and infiltrative cardiomyopathy, such as amyloidosis and sarcoidosis. And if the initial workup thus far is unremarkable, and we are considering these cardiac diseases as our differential, then I think it's very reasonable to consider advanced cardiac imaging, such as a cardiac MRI, for further evaluation. Cardiac MRI can be you know, a really great tool to evaluate for ischemic versus non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, such as the infiltrative cardiomyopathies that we talked about. And, you know, certain mapping protocols can potentially help detect the presence of edema, such as in the case of myocarditis. And in addition, we can use contrast like the, the gadolinium that can help identify the presence of scar as well as scar burden. And there are also patterns and location of these late gadolinium enhancement, which we call LGEs, which may help you clue you in into whether it's ischemic versus non-ischemic cardiomyopathies and the ones that you may encounter. So Pablo, it looks like that the team selected to proceed with the cardiac MRI. What did they find? So the cardiac MRI showed mesocardial, meaning between the endocardium and the epicardium, as well as epicardial delayed gadolinium enhancement of the mid-inferior and mid-interoceptal walls. In other words, he had fibrotic changes in the mid-interventricular septum. However, 
T2 sequences showed no increase intensity, suggesting that there was no myocardial edema there, which would usually point you to myocarditis. Interestingly, it also showed that he had prominent enlarged mediastinal and hilar lymph nodes. Time out. An otherwise healthy 39-year-old gentleman presenting with complete heart block found to have mesocardial delayed gadolinium enhancement in the septum and hilar lymph adenopathy. Pablo, I know just who to call. Maggie, can you flex some knowledge? Of course, sure. So in this case, we really are suspicious of cardiac sarcoidosis, and we really want to think about that as a potential differential diagnosis. So I do want to talk a little bit about sarcoidosis, and I want to start with systemic sarcoidosis. As we remember sarcoidosis in medical school, we learned that it is a systemic autoimmune disease consisting of abnormal granuloma formations in the body, right? And this can involve virtually any organ. So the liver, the spleen, bone marrow, skin, eyes, what have you. But the most common sites of involvement are the lymph nodes and the pulmonary system. There are many hypotheses out there involving genetic susceptibilities with certain gene polymorphisms, such as like the HLA and the TNF-alpha-2 gene differences, as well as complex environmental exposure and interactions. But honestly, we still do not know the ideology of this disease. And in about 10 to 30% of the times, these granulomatous inflammation can involve the heart. And in these cases, we call this cardiac sarcoidosis. And just to also point this out, that cardiac sarcoidosis can occur in isolation, meaning that the only organ of involvement is the heart without any other extra cardiac organ involvement. But also it can be concurrently involved in kind of a systemic sarcoidosis. Cardiac involvement of this granulomatous inflammation are often very, very patchy and seemingly random. But if you want us to rank the most common sites of involvement in the heart to the least, then I would say it would be the septum first, especially the basal septum, the other parts of the left ventricular myocardium. So this could be the lateral, the anterior wall, the inferior wall, and then also the right side of ventricle ventricular walls, the atria. And sometimes they could even involve, you know, the papillary muscles and the valves causing valvular pathologies, as well as pericardium causing pericarditis. But these are a little more rare. Depending on the site of involvement, patients can present with different cardiac manifestations. But the three most common cardiac presentations that we see are, number one, is conduction abnormalities, such as in our gentleman here. And this is about maybe 20 to 60% of the patients ventricular arrhythmia like BTVF in up to 40% of the patients, and lastly, cardiomyopathy heart failure in about 10 to 30% of patients. And sometimes, unfortunately, the first cardiac manifestation is sudden cardiac death. And as you can imagine, cardiac sarcoidosis can be associated with a significant cardiac mortality and, and, and morbidity and mortality, especially if it's not diagnosed early or recognized early. Lastly, I do want you to know that patients can present with one or multiple cardiac symptoms or all of the cardiac symptoms that I mentioned, and sometimes even no symptoms at all. And this is actually coming from some of the autopsy studies with patients that passed away, presumably from other cardiac causes. So what are you thinking we should do next to help make this diagnosis? Well, you know, the diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis is actually quite difficult. Only in recent years or decade that cardiac sarcoidosis has gained increasing recognition as a potential cause of significant cardiac morbidity and mortality. So I think the number one thing is to think about that as your differential, because if you're never going to think about it, you're never going to diagnose it. As to how to diagnose this, you know, of course, a definitive diagnosis is via an uh, endomyocardial biopsy that shows granulomatous inflammation. Besides that, the fact that these endomyocardial biopsies are quite invasive, remember that I mentioned that the cardiac involvement can be quite patchy. So sometimes you can miss it on these biopsies. And the yield of these biopsies, unfortunately, can be pretty low. And some of the studies have shown maybe about 20 to 30 percent. So a negative biopsy does not rule out cardiac sarcoidosis. In addition, the natural course of this disease can be waxing and waning. So sometimes after the granuloma inflammation kind of burns out, 
even if you're on the right spot, you can potentially get nonspecific biopsy findings, such as scarring. So in the past decade or so, clinicians really have relied increasingly on other tools to diagnose cardiac sarcoidosis, but incorporating an advanced cardiac imaging to, to help. I do want you to be aware of two current available guidelines out there on the diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis. And number one is the Japanese Ministry of Health and Welfare that was published in 1993, which uh, was revised and adapted by the Japanese Society of Sarcoidosis and Other Granulomatous Disorder, published in 2006. But in North America, you may be more familiar with the criteria of clinical diagnosis of what we call probable cardiac sarcoidosis because you don't have the endomyocardial biopsy, right? And this is based on the HRS, the Heart Rhythm Society Expert Consensus Statement, which was published in 2014. And in this clinical criteria, what you have to do is you you should meet the three conditions as they listed. So number one is that you have an histiological diagnosis of extracardiac sarcoidosis, meaning that if the patient have uh, lymph node involvement or pulmonary involvement or skin involvement, and you have the diagnosis of sarcoidosis from these biopsies. And then the second criteria is one or more of the, the following, meaning that they have some sort of cardiac manifestations like heart failure, unexplained less than 40%, unexplained heart block, like in our patient here. And then abnormal uptake of a PET scan, which we can talk about in a little bit, but abnormal advanced imaging findings on PET and cardiac MRI that may be consistent with cardiac sarcoidosis. And then lastly, this is a diagnosis of exclusion, which you cannot explain these cardiac manifestation reasonably by other causes. So Maggie, just to summarize so that I have it straight, because there's a lot of information there, it sounds like we can make a pretty confident diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis. Either A, if we do end up getting an endomyocardial biopsy that shows non-caseating granulomas in the right clinical context in the absence of other possible causes of granulomatous inflammation, or B, especially given the low yield of endomyocardial biopsies, even when we obtain it with imaging guidance, the alternative pathway for making a probable diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis would be Again, still, I think to hammer in the point that this is a histologic diagnosis, fundamentally, the alternate way would be to have an extra cardiac histologic diagnosis with a you know, pathology specimen, a biopsy specimen from a site other than the heart, along with one of the or multiple of the cardiac clinical manifestations like you outlined, and without alternate explanation for those manifestations. That's absolutely correct. That's a really good summary. Of course, Dr. Watellis may come on later on and talk about potentially limitations of this clinical criteria that was published in HRS. Because as you can imagine, as I mentioned before, sometimes people, let's say they have isolated cardiac sarcoidosis that do not have any extra cardiac involvement, then you'll, you're never going to meet the, the criteria for diagnosis via the clinical pathway, at least by HRS criteria. Uh, interesting. So by the HRS criteria, there's no such thing as isolated cardiac sarcoidosis. Dr. Wittels, <laughs> what do you say about that? Yeah, thanks. This is a really important and, and complicated topic. So yeah, both th- these two criteria, though, they are the published ones that we have. They, they clearly need revising for 2021, where we are now, where probably the majority of patients who are diagnosed with cardiac sarcoidosis wouldn't meet the criteria because, as Maggie outlined, the yield of endomyocardial biopsy in this disease, unlike, say, amyloidosis, is really quite low. And so most of the time, we don't even try it. So if you have the right clinical story and classical imaging, and I think we'll get to imaging, PET imaging in a moment, so I'll hold my comments until then, then usually that's going to be enough to make the diagnosis. And either A, biopsy will be impractical, or B, biopsy in another organ, while feasible to do, just isn't necessary. So the way I look at it is, again, there are really three options for having it. You can have that histological diagnosis from the heart, but that's uncommon. 
Number two, you can have the extra cardiac sarcoid and classical imaging findings. But there's that big number three, which is either isolated cardiac, which I think we'll talk about more later, or where you have such obviously classical uptake on the PET scan, extra cardiac, in addition to what's in the heart, that there's just no need to put the patient through the risk and discomfort of a biopsy. So Maggie, when I talked with you on the phone that night, what did you recommend we we should do next? So after reviewing his presentation and his cardiac MRI, I am very suspicious for cardiac sarcoidosis, and I think that should be evaluated. I recommended to you, as you remember, a cardiac FDG PET scan. And the reason I wanted that is that this specific scan can provide additional information than the cardiac MRI. So just backing up on what is cardiac FDG PET scan. So these are the fluorodeoxyglucose PET scans, which are these radionucleotide tagged glucose that you inject in the patient. And the patient's body will uptake these glucose and lights up in certain areas. And just to make sure that we're all on the same page, as you remember that the heart can metabolize or utilize glucose and fatty acid for its energy, right? So in certain circumstances, for example, low carb environment, that the heart can switch to fatty metabolism and preserve glucose for the rest of the body to use. For example, brain loves glucose as the primary source of energy. And in certain circumstances, the abnormal cells like cancer cells, as well as granulomatous inflammation, so these granuloma cells will have higher metabolic activity and they preferentially take up these glucose. So in these circumstances, when you prep the patient well for these studies, what you will see is you'll see that granuloma cells will have a higher FDG uptake, what we call FDG avidity in the heart, and the rest of the normal myocardium would be relatively low activities. So at Stanford, what we do is we uh, will order these cardiac FDG PET scans to determine whether there are any active inflammation caused by, let's say, cardiac sarcoidosis. So the protocol we use, which, you know, it could be different for certain institutions, is to put these patients on low-carb to no-carb, kind of like keto diet, at least 12 hours before. But I know there are studies have shown that maybe 24 or longer, 24, 48, or even 72 hours may make the skin much, much better. But at least what we do is the day before, one to two days before, we put them on um, high-fat, high-protein, non-carbohydrate diet. And then the night before the scan, they are MPO at midnight. They have fasted certain hours, about 12 hours. And then we do these scans. Can I ask a quick question? I guess this is probably a center-to-center variation, but when you guys do the cardiac sarcoid PET protocol, do you also at the same time typically do a whole body PET at the same time or no? We do. And then I imagine at the same time, you're also doing a, a resting myocardial perfusion scan. Sometimes we do actually, but not all the time. So, well, let's start with the perfusion scan. So the perfusion scan, what that's really showing you are their dead areas of the myocardium. You're not, of course, really interested in the perfusion per se. You're just using this as a way to see live or dead myocardium. And this can be helpful both in terms of if those areas still are aligning with positive areas of of FDG, it will make you more suspicious that the findings are real. And then when we look at the whole body portion of the PET scan, it is absolutely critical. The the thing about FDG pets, as we'll probably get into, is that the second biggest epidemic we've had over the last year in this country uh, has been false positive sarcoid pet scans, I'm, I'm convinced. I cannot tell you how many patients I get sent over who have supposed diagnosis of cardiac sarcoid, who have either already been started on immunosuppression or where it is has been suggested to be done. And it's simply a false positive PET scan. The, the dietary preparation that Maggie nicely outlined is critical. And if somebody uh, slips in a little bit of carbohydrate, the test is worthless. And even if they follow it meticulously, in some people, you simply cannot fully switch over the heart's metabolism away from glucose towards fatty acids with dietary manipulation. And so that's where the rest of the body is so helpful. So like in this gentleman's case, the fact that he had 
classic Hyler adenopathy, and then you know we'll we'll see with the PET scan. That's super helpful in terms of pushing you towards our way to diagnose uh, from the diagnosis. I would not think about a sarcoid protocol PET scan in terms of positive and negative. I would think of it in terms of helping push you one way or the other with the rest of both the clinical information as well as the extra cardiac uptake that that is or isn't present. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Vitalis. And, and I would also guide the audience to the nuclear multimodality imaging episode, specifically with regards to cardiac sarcoidosis, where we go through all the different modalities that we can use to better understand this disease. This is such a classic disease where we see the beauty and the power of using the different modalities to cinch the diagnosis. And, you know, we, we talk about how the need for the dietary prep and the need to suppress basal myocardial glucose uptake and glucose metabolism is really the Achilles heel of the cardiac sarcoid PET study. And so we talk about how the concurrent perfusion scan can really help improve the specificity, right? Because you may have areas that appear dead, lack of uptake, either because they're scarred and are truly dead, or because there's functional myocardial ischemia or perfusion deficit related to the concurrent inflammation. And Dr. Tells you outlined the utility of the whole body PET, both to improve the diagnostic yield and certainty around myocardial FDG uptake, and also potentially to guide our approach for an extra cardiac biopsy to help us with the diagnosis, as Maggie outlined earlier. We also go over the cardiac MRI utility and whatnot. And so I think there's so much to discuss here with regards to this case, but definitely we can check out the other episode as well. Wonderful. Um, so for for our patient, the team ultimately got the cardiac FTG PET, and this showed focal FTG uptake in the basal septum, and this coincided generally with the areas of mesocardial delayed gadolinium enhancement in the cardiac MRI, although those were in the mid-anterior and mid-inferior septum. Overall, this was concerning for possible active cardiac sarcoidosis. There were also intensely hypermetabolic, supraclavicular, mediastinal, and bilateral hilar nodes that were also concerning for sarcoidosis. Maggie and Ron, is this what you would expect to see? I mean, we see a large but not complete alignment of the imaging abnormalities here. Thanks, Pablo. Earlier, we talked about there is, quote unquote, a classical patterns that we see on these advanced imaging, such as in cardiac MRI and PET scan. But actually, this is a quite heterogeneous disease because of the patchiness involvement. So as an internal medicine resident, my research was actually on using serial cardiac FDG PET scan in the diagnosis and therapeutic guidance of patients with cardiac sarcoidosis. And I summarized uh, our experience in the past decade with all of these PET scans and the patterns that we see. We essentially kind of divided this up into three major patterns. And I'll provide the link to our publication and our, our the types of this patterns to uh, your show notes. But essentially, there's you know the normal, so very low to no activity. And then the one that we see here in our patient is the patchy or focal uptake in a specific area, whether that be in the septum or the inferior or the anterior or the lateral wall. So focal patchy uptake, that is one of the patterns. And then you can have diffuse, meaning that the LV diffusely shows FDG avidity. And then lastly is focal or patchy on diffuse. So there is a, a focal or patchy area of a very hot FDG uh, avidity that lights up, but then you also in the background have diffuse uptake. And lastly, the patient sometimes can have RV, the right ventricular involvement. And there are some studies out there that have shown patients with these involvement often have worse prognosis and do worse. And then another example here, I showed poor preparation. So you can see that to the untrained eye, people can say, oh, these are positive. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so you know this this scan, it's it's a really beautiful scan for for what happened in this case because there's just this tiny area of, of cardiac uptake, but it happens to be, of course, right where the conduction system is. So it fits very well with someone who would present with heart block, but without segmental wall motion abnormalities, heart failure, etc. Okay, so how do we reconcile this with the MRI findings that showed more extensive uptake? Remember that cardiac sarcoidosis is a disease that, or sarcoidosis in general, is a disease that waxes and wanes in activity, even in the absence of any therapy. So what we're probably seeing on the MRI with some of those other areas of scar 
are areas that used to be positive, that used to have uh, active inflammation, that just on their own got better from the inflammatory standpoint. What the FDG PET is showing is what is inflamed right now, and lo and behold, it's right at the spot that we would expect at the uh, conduction system. Wonderful. So essentially, this is a disease that has a spectrum of activity that may wax and wane. And so the imaging modalities that we use to evaluate it may show different patterns of disease, not because they can't be lined up with each other, but because the disease itself changes over time. Am I understanding that correctly? I think that's very well put. And and the this is because a PET scan often, again, will push you one way or the other, but it's not completely diagnostic in many cases. This is where, if there is any doubt, that multimodality imaging can be helpful so that when you're seeing an area of rather subtle late gadolinium enhancement on MRI, but then, hey, it correlates right where you're seeing it on PET, that's going to make you you believe it more. And then we see here again, the, the, the uptake in the basal septum was pretty subtle. It was there, but pretty subtle. But gosh, the uptake in the nodes was not subtle at all. And so it really helps guide you to, again, have the full body. In this case, I suppose you would have caught it anyway because it's all in the chest. But to, be, to take the extra cardiac findings and integrate them with the cardiac findings. So, Dr. Wittellis, I have a question I'd like to run by you with regards to especially the diffuse FDG uptake. I think in that context, generally we might think about a limited differential diagnosis. Either maybe it's poor prep and you just have failure of myocardial suppression. Two, you know, maybe it's sarcoidosis, but again, just a more aggressive form. Three, maybe it's some other type of myocarditis because, you know, FDG is being taken up by white blood cells. It's hard to differentiate whether it's, you know, the non-casing granulomatous inflammation or other inflammation. But four, and something I learned about from our case with our Northwestern colleagues was genetic cardiomyopathies that can present with inflammatory episodes, specifically DSP or desmoplatin cardiomyopathy, maybe even lamin cardiomyopathy. Have you come across that? And, you know, would you consider a genetic evaluation in the right context with the, with that picture? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I would put it this way. Diffuse myocardial uptake, I would call a non-diagnostic PET scan, hard stop, end of story. Um, it, over-interpreting those as positive showing uh, diffuse inflammation is prone to get you into trouble. Now, if we extend that, though, and say, hey, when somebody, a young person is presenting with heart block or with a restrictive cardiomyopathy, et cetera, and often things like sarcoid and amyloid restrictive cardiomyopathies and those acquired restrictive cardiomyopathies will often run in the same differential circles as the inherited cardiomyopathies. So absolutely, it's appropriate to do a genetics uh, evaluation when something isn't fitting as completely classic. Now, we can get to, in this case, would that be needed or not? And I would say no, because this fits the diagnostic. We're, we're building a very nice story here from the diagnostic workup that's been done so far that it wouldn't be needed. But that if, if you have either unexplained arrhythmias or unexplained restrictive cardiomyopathy in a younger patient, you should be doing a genetics evaluation, period, regardless of that PET. But diffuse uptake PET, just count that as non-diagnostic and, and leave it there. It's, it's, it's almost like trying to read ischemic changes in a left bundle branch block. You're generally going to cause, uh, cause yourself more problems than anything. Right. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And, and the team had taken the initial diffuse uptake uh, to mean that there was a poor prep counted as non-diagnostic, repeated the study with a sort of monitored ketogenic diet prep, showed the same thing, and then verified it with uh, tissue characterization on MRI before moving on to a genetics eval. So it was a phenomenal case, but I, I really appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. And Dr. Ritalis, knowing that PET is going to show you active inflammation and MRI is going to show you scar and inflammation, and it may be hard to tease out which one is which, do you have a particular preference of which modality you go after first? And it doesn't make a difference if the patient is presenting acutely or you're seeing a patient as a follow-up, second opinion? Yeah. I mean, for sarcoidosis, PET is really the workhorse at the end of the day, among other reasons, because we want to treat active inflammation, not past inflammation, right? So so if you could only do one, it should absolutely be FTG PET. And most importantly is if you get a stone-cold normal FTG PET, you're done, right? It's, it's you don't have any active inflammation. You can see the rest of the body doesn't have active uptake. I think you can pretty well exclude it at that point. Now, that doesn't tell you what your diagnosis is, of course. It's also, as Maggie was just getting at, our workhorse for using, for following patients over time once we start them on immunosuppression to make sure, A, that we have the right response, and B, that we can achieve that long-term response with the lowest amount of long-term immunosuppression possible. 
In this particular clinical scenario, it may be really challenging to get that CMR because the patient's got an unstable conduction rhythm, will be unmonitored in the cardiac MRI for a prolonged period. If you put in a transvenous pacer, then you can't get the cardiac MRI. Eventually, they get a permanent pacemaker or an ICD device, and you can get the artifact uh, that'll decrease your diagnostic yield. So I think a lot of limitations for MRI in the acute setting. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, MRI and, and, and I don't want to upset my MRI colleagues by saying this because it's an extraordinarily helpful test. But I think that a lot of times, honestly, the way it is used, particularly as it has expanded in availability to the community, is patient has something strange going on with their heart. Ergo, we will get an MRI. That's actually fine, right? Because it, that's what ends up often leading to everybody can't be an expert on everything. Nobody is. And so you may not know about that disease that turns out to be amyloid or sarcoid or even a more uncommon disease that might show a rather characteristic pattern on MRI. But MRI really will not clinch the diagnosis of almost anything. It it can help point you in a direction or, or, or another. So if you're specifically concerned about cardiac sarcoidosis, PET scan should be your preferred imaging modality. If it's more, gosh, this is strange. Why does this young person have a heart block? Or why does this person have a wall motion abnormality with a normal catheterization? Then MRI is certainly a reasonable first step that might then point you one direction or the other. Great. Thanks. Wonderful. So we now have a patient whose clinical syndrome, cardiac MRI, and FDG PET are all suggestive of sarcoidosis. So is it sarcoid yet? Right. You know, as uh, Ron mentioned earlier, at this point, you know, you could argue that this is so, so classical and, and fitting of cardiac sarcoidosis that we may not need a lymph node biopsy, an extracardiac biopsy. You know, I think the team had a lot of discussion on whether to pursue a lymph node biopsy or not. And in the end, the team decided to pursue this biopsy. Number one is that there was such an easily accessible beckoning supraclavicular node that was just right there for the biopsy. And second is that we certainly can fit the HRS criteria if we have that definitive extra cardiac biopsy. And then third was that the team wants to make sure that they're not missing anything else given impressive lymphadenopathy, that they're not missing things like lymphoma. So a biopsy was done. And Pablo, what does that show? So actually, let me just say that I love that you describe this lymph node as beckoning, like it's like it wants to have a fine needle aspiration. It's calling to Maggie. It's calling yeah, exactly. to her. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, so since he had a supracavicular lymph node that was that FTG avid, the team pursued a fine needle aspiration of that. This ended up showing granulomatous inflammation. AFB and GMS stains were negative, and this excluded fungal and mycobacterial disease, at least of them involving that note. And there was no evidence of infiltrative malignancy or lymphoma. So what about now? Is it sarcoidosis now? Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. I think it's a very reasonable debate in terms of whether the node biopsy was needed and one where I think there's not a right and wrong answer. I would have personally been comfortable calling this cardiac sarcoidosis based on the imaging alone in a young patient where there's no other good reason for heart block with characteristic PET scan findings, both extracardiac and cardiac. What else could this be? And of course, the adenopathy itself could cause lymphoma, but gee, how do we then take that to explain what's the, the heart block presentation? So I think one could have reasonably just treated based on that. On the other hand, with that beckoning lymph node, gosh, I don't think it's wrong to clinch the diagnosis either. And it, it's certainly very, very low risk procedure and low morbidity procedure. And now you know for sure. Wonderful. So yeah, this was an amazing case of cardiac sarcoidosis presenting as complete heart block. So the next step is a permanent pacemaker, right, Jimmy? Yes, but it's a little more complicated than that. The patient definitely needs a pacemaker, but the question is, do they also need an ICD? What is really interesting is patients with cardiac sarcoidosis that present with high-grade AV block have similar rates of fatal cardiac events, so cardiac death, VF, and sustained VT, compared to those whose initial presentation was with VT or heart failure. In fact, in a single-center study, greater than 50% of cardiac sarcoidosis patients who presented with AV block experienced a fatal cardiac event at 34 months follow-up. 
Therefore, societal recommendations reflect this increased cardiac risk in cardiac sarcoidosis patients and gives a class 2A recommendation for ICD implantation in cardiac sarcoidosis patients who have an indication for permanent pacing, unexplained syncope, or inducible VTVF. Therefore, our patient got a dual chamber ICD. Okay, so the next step is what do we do about cardiac sarcoidosis? And I do want to talk about treatment of cardiac sarcoidosis that may be available. But before I go on to treatment options, I want to touch base on the stages of cardiac sarcoidosis. As you know, with any inflammatory disease, you see the initial inflammation, swelling, and edema, then progressive scarring of the tissue. We see that in the heart as well, the inflammation, the edema, the scarring, and lastly, you have this irreversible remodeling of the heart. And sometimes, as you know, you might have heard of the term as burnt out sarcoid. So in many cases, we really, really want to have early detection and diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis. So in hope that we can initiate appropriate and early treatment and potentially prevent further extent of the inflammation and and further irreversible scarring of the heart. As with any inflammatory autoimmune disease, our go-to therapies are anti-inflammatory, so our immunosuppressants. So acutely, we use steroids such as prednisone. And for this disease, we often use 30 to 60 milligrams per day at first, but as you know, with the numerous adverse side effects that can be associated with long-term steroid use, and this is a disease that kind of waxes and wanes throughout the ages, we definitely want to consider starting maybe simultaneously steroid-sparing immunosuppressant agents. And the one we often use are methotrexate, but others can be used as well, so such as azathioprine and mycophenolate. And the methotrexate that in our institution, what we use is a weekly dosing with goal dose of 20 to 25 milligram once a week. But we often start patient a much lower than that with up titration by 2.5 milligrams every other week to get to our target methotrexate dosage. So once you get to the gold target methotrexate, we hope that we are able to eventually wean off the steroids or at least to a a low maintenance dose um, as soon as possible. But sometimes if the initial immunosuppressants are not enough, we would need to uptitrate to stronger immunosuppressants. And actually, in our experience, and as well as some of the published data out there, there are patients that actually have such incredible inflammatory diseases that are super, super hard to control that may be even somewhat resistant to steroids. And this is you know, could be anywhere from, you know, 10, 20% of the patients that we see that they may need bigger, stronger immunosuppressants with the TNF-alpha inhibitors. And, you know, that's your infliximab, the adalimumab, and the galimumab. So at Stanford, as I mentioned earlier, we find that using serial FDG PET scans, that's not only number one to help us with the diagnosis, but also provide the sophisticated way to help us guide immunosuppressant titration, whether there's active disease that we should treat, or if there's any responses, partial responses or no responses, that we need to up-titrate to appropriate level of immunosuppressants as early as possible as well as, you know, give us a a pointer to help us decide that we could potentially have early tapering off these chronic steroids as soon as possible to at least a low dose, but sometimes even completely off right away. Yeah, so that's a beautiful description, Maggie. I just want to emphasize for the audience uh, you mentioned, but I really want to emphasize the point. So uh, our approach is to pretty much on every patient start a steroid sparing agent up front with the steroids because the, for the long term, we want to control the disease with something and something that's the lowest immunosuppression possible but with the greatest safety margin with the fewest long-term side effects. So as, as Maggie pointed out, we will typically for active cardiac sarcoid use steroids and methotrexate from the very beginning so that we can then hopefully with time get them off the steroids completely. Thanks, Ron. So with our patient, I started to see him in my clinic. We started exactly just that. We started a steroid for him at 40 milligrams per day with some of the prophylaxis, for example, with 
spectrum for PJP prophylaxis with famotidine for GI prophylaxis and vitamin D and calcium with the high-dose steroids. And then we started him on methotrexate with the plan to up titrate by 2.5 milligrams every other week until he reached the target optimal maintenance dose of 20 milligrams every week. And, and with that, he also started on folic acid, one milligram a day with labs follow-up. So initially we start doing every two weeks labs, including you know CBC to make sure that he doesn't have significant cytopenia with methotrexate. And then of course your CMP comprehensive metabolic panel, make sure his kidney functions are okay. And of course the, the liver, potential liver toxicity with the methotrexate. And he did quite well with that and was able to reach his goal target dose of methotrexate without any issues. We were able to space out his labs to every month and with a plan to every three months and able to um, start weaning prednisone. And now he is in the process of slowly completely weaned off. So he had a recent PET scan that was just done. And I want to share the good news that his FDG avidity that was seen in the prior PET scan has completely resolved. And he actually also have significant improvement and decrease in the lymphadenopathies that you see as well. Wow. So here we present a case of an otherwise healthy young adult who presented with fatigue and palpitations and was found to have complete heart block, secondary to cardiac sarcoidosis a diagnosis that was suggested by cardiac MRI and then ultimately clinched by cardiac PET scan and lymph node biopsy. He received a dual chamber ICD and was started on immunosuppression with improvement in AV conduction and decreased active inflammation on repeat cardiac FDG PET scan and outpatient follow-up. So yeah, so here are some takeaway points of when to consider cardiac sarcoidosis basic treatment, and then decision around placement of an ICD. Uh, one, cardiac sarcoidosis is a disease characterized by non-caseating granulomas involving the heart, and this can exist alone or together with other organ system involvement. Two, depending on the sites of cardiac involvement, it can present as conduction system disease, ventricular arrhythmia, or heart failure. Three, Cardiac sarcoidosis should be considered in patients with history of sarcoidosis involving other organ systems who then also develop ventricular dysfunction, wall motion abnormalities, or arrhythmias. Four, cardiac sarcoid should be considered in patients who present with an otherwise unexplained heart block or ventricular tachycardia, especially if they're less than 40 years of age. Five, it is generally recommended that patients with cardiac sarcoidosis with an indication for pacemaker then receive an ICD at the time of implantation, regardless of the history of VT. And then six, Treatment of active cardiac sarcoidosis generally consists of steroids for acute management, but also concurrent steroid sparing agents such as methotrexate with eventual plan for steroid wean. Anything else to add, Dr. Botellis? Well, I, you know, I think this is just a beautiful case, and it really highlights the importance of curiosity and comprehensiveness, which you know, I think are two of the characteristics that really define a superb internist or cardiologist. It would have been very easy to blow this off and say, well, he's got heart block, we'll place a pacemaker and call it a day. And then with near certainty, this disease would have progressed until some likely really bad outcome, which I could have been a fatal ventricular arrhythmia or development of heart failure or other organ complications. So, you know, this is really a great example of the clinicians involved with this case, all of you, recognizing, hey, something's amiss, doing the right workup, and then getting this gentleman the right treatment. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> Thank you. It's always a good day when we make Ron proud of us. I, I live every day and try and send him texts throughout the week and see if he, he'll be proud of me. But he's so, mostly he just tells me he's proud of Maggie. <laughs> I can see why. I can see why. Well, uh, guys, this was such a treat for us. You know, Pablo, Maggie, Jimmy, you know, for me and Dan, there's nothing better than this sort of discussion. We were able to just sit back, relax, enjoy the show and learn so much. Pablo, it is truly an honor for us to have you as the ambassador to represent Stanford. Jimmy, your love for electrophysiology shines throughout this entire discussion. And Maggie, your mastery of sarcoidosis really shows as, you know, somebody who's been doing research in this area. So, you know, very glad you were able to join us this time and hope to have you back. Dr. Vitellis, 
What a joy for us to have you join us for this part of the discussion. It's a first for us, but really, you know, elevated the discussion. And I, I don't know if you remember this. The last time I had the pleasure of having you along for a real life case discussion in real time was when Stanford did this educational exchange with Hopkins and you joined us for our bedside rounds. It was a super complicated internal medicine patient, unfortunately coming in pretty ill multi-organ failure, many metabolic derangements. And I remember you you congratulated the third-year medical student who presented the case very beautifully. And you went on to give us this like incredible off the top of your mind and the spur of the moment teaching on hypercalcemia. It was phenomenal. And I was like, wow, like you're you're such an educator. And you know, it was great to learn from you then. It was great to learn from you today. And we can't wait to learn from you again down the road. So thank you team for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, uh, full disclosure, Dan made me buy a quieter mouse and keyboard for recordings because I'm a very aggressive clicker and typer. You know what? I spent I spent all my money on this microphone, so I I can't buy. Now, Pablo, I know the generous fellow salary that you get, and you're about to get the big chief fellow supplement, so I don't believe that for a moment. 